We talk about being a republic, being a democratic process, but what is a democracy, really? Well, we'll be discussing some of those details on the show today. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig dignity of man. When we chose the name of this show back in 2015, Keeping Democracy Alive, there was no real threat to democracy in America. Sure, it wasn't a full democracy, but there were no real political forces that actually had democracy as a target to destroy. Then came Trump, unleashing authoritarian racist instincts, which have been there for a long time, but stayed beneath the sewer lid. Our guest on the first half of Keeping Democracy Today, Van Goss, writes in a new essay on the History News Network, which I highly recommend. He says, we are rapidly heading back to what the United States has been for most of its history, a strictly procedural sham democracy, where minorities claim power and then hold on to it by any means necessary. End of quote. The title of his piece is, The U.S. is a procedural, not a substantive democracy. Van Goss is professor of history at Franklin and Marshall College. He's co-chair of Historians for Peace and Democracy and is the author of The First Reconstruction, Black Politics in America from the Revolution to the Civil War. Thanks very much for being with us and keeping oh, well, democracy alive. Thank you, Bert. It's great to be here. Well, we we really should start by defining terms. What do you mean by procedural democracy, and what would a substantive democracy look like? Okay, um, to me, and I, uh, uh, anyone who wants can Google. Um, I published two broadsides. Historians for Peace and Democracy has them. Um, why the U.S. is not a true democracy, parts one and two which is basically a similar argument to what you just quoted, okay? Yep. Um, to me, it's a basic thing. In a, an electoral democracy, majorities rule. That is the principle. Anything that somehow ends up without a majority is an error, something went wrong. Mm -hmm. No, you know, the people of, you know, name any number of countries, you know, dozens of countries around the world, they go out and vote. Um, you know, their, their party wins a parliamentary election, parliamentary elections are there you know in england you can win a parliamentary election you don't win it with a minority of the popular votes it right. doesn't happen that way in okay. theory it could but it doesn't happen in this country as we now know it happens all the time the republican party has carried the popular vote in a presidential election once since 1988 that's what i mean by a procedural democracy they've won the presidency twice doing that almost won it by a few hundred thousand votes, almost won it, you know, despite Biden's seven million vote plurality mm -hmm. last time around. So this is the, this is the immediate example. Our system, which we, you know, pretended didn't really matter, the electoral college, right. that's the example of a, of a procedural rather than substantive democracy. Democracies mean majorities rule with protections for minorities. Now, I actually want to start out right out there by sort of disagreeing. I understood why you said what you said in 2015. 
it is really, it is so easy to say, and I've said it, to say, look, Trump came along and changed the game. The Republican Party had been building up to Trump. Uh, Trump stepped into a vacuum. People need to remember that Donald Trump first started running, started talking about running. He talks a lot about 20 years ago. And he was going to run as that cliched phrase, a social liberal and fiscal conservative. Mm-hmm. And he said, he didn't ask her, that he was going to ask Oprah Winfrey to be his, his running mate. He hung out with Democrats. He, a somebody that I wouldn't call him a friend, but we got to know each other and had some great correspondence towards the end of his life, Tom Hayden, ah, the great mm-hmm. founder of SDS. Right. He, Tom told me that he and Jane went skiing with Donald and Marla, okay? Uh, Donald Trump hosted Jerry Adams, the head of <laughs> Sinn Féin in New York. You know, he wasn't the Clinton's mar- you know, daughter's marriage by some accident. So this guy was a complete opportunist. Now, we know that something happened with him when Obama stripped the bark off him in 2011. Right. The, pr- the fact of the matter is the Republican Party for decades has been trying to figure out a way around its looming minority status. This goes all the way back, I mean, you know, there's not much of a break between us getting a true democracy, which is the Voting Rights Act, the first time in American history, except maybe 1868, 1872, except the first time that a majority of African Americans could vote. If you have a country where a caste or race or ethnic group is systematically disfranchised, and there are plenty of examples, yes. that's not a true democracy. That's a procedural democracy. So we got it in 68 in, you know, barely hanging on, didn't take long for Republicans. Does anybody here, if you're old enough, remember Jesse Jackson forcing J. Bradford Reynolds, was that his name? Reagan's, you know, uh, Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights, taking him around the South in 83 and 84 and showing him that they'd been closing so there's only one polling place per county. And even Bradford Reynolds said, well, obviously, you know, that's not really okay in a big rural county. So they've been doing this. In many cases, look what I just said, Alabama 84. These are the same people, the people who'd been, you know, segregationist Democrats, switched their party label. They knew how to disfranchise, and they kept doing it. So this is, you know, true just functioning, everybody reasonable chance to vote is really an exception. It's, I mean, there are states where it's been true for, you know, uh, a very long time. There are states... You know, where, where you are up in New, Upper New England, it's been mostly true. I, I could be, there may be things I don't know about because my research on this tends to go up to 1860, but free black men have been voting in Upper New England since the 1780s. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not talking about three or four. We're talking about measurable numbers in New England port cities and in parts of New Hampshire, rural New Hampshire. This is what I study. So it's very, the... The substantive democracy is, you know, sure, you can find it in parts of the U.S. for long periods of time and sometimes, for, you know, episodically, and then large parts of the U.S. where it's barely existed. The yes. Deep South, it's barely existed for maybe 20, 25 years. That's about it. Well, it's, it's an interesting, and obviously I can't argue with it, that before Trump came along, it's been in the sights for a long time. Screw yep. democracy. We want power. That's yes. what it is. That's really what it is. This is about power. It is about power. And you look at the current crop of, of Republicans in Congress, pff, it's all about power. I mean, look at what uh, the new Speaker of the House did. Yeah, it's yeah. all about power. And that's what it's always been about. It is a mistake to think that systematic disfranchisement is comes out of yeah. deep-seated racial animus. You may mobilize that. Right. You may manipulate that. But this is about power. 
If enough Democrats had decided in 1910 or 1920 in some Southern state, hmm, you know, we could really, we, our faction could, we could do very well if we let some of the, the, the black men vote. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, that was a constant charge in the, you know, roughly 75 or more years where very few, very few, not quite zero, but very few black people Mm -hmm. voted in the South. Right. After 1940, more and more start voting. There was a constant charge that one or another Democratic Party faction was going to go and get their votes. It was always an option because it's about power. Sure. And there was a significant time where uh, women, white women, any woman, didn't have the right to vote. But they they felt, obviously, they felt like that would be to their uh, benefit to to have women uh, vote and yeah. well women went and got the vote i mean women yeah. were grant women were granted the vote all over the western u.s decades and decades before you know they finally got the federal right to vote because it was in their interest it would stimulate you know they desperately needed white people to move out to places like colorado and uh, nebraska whichever so they said well we're gonna have women's suffrage though that'll be an incentive Power. Funny thing about yes. that. that the, yeah. oh, the, the, the attraction of power. Just it, It's amazing how it trumps everything else. And as yeah. you know, forces on the right, I may be wrong on this, but I found that, that it is forces on the right who are habitually fond of saying, we are a republic. We're not a democracy. Talk mm. about that, please. And in what ways do you say they are right? Well, I mean... That's their way of saying that's a a polite, constitutionally, you know, sort of high flown version of saying, of acknowledging this is not a democracy. So stop pretending it is. It's a republic. It's a system of separate of of what were completely sovereign states for most purposes until 1865. Yes. Um, We get to do what we want to do locally. And if that means that we disfranchise, well, that's right, because this is a republic, not a democracy. The idea of absolute democratic rights is what the thing is, well, no, actually, we don't we don't believe in that. So and they're appealing to the fact that, I mean, nobody at the founding of America, nobody thought we were a democracy. Democracy is this is a standard thing we you know end up teaching people. Democracy was a code word for mob rule and yep. anarchy, right? Yep. Yep. Gradually the word got taken over. Um, but you know, so the Republican, not a democracy. Well, I mean, the, the problem is they're right. If the largest patterns of American history are of selective enfranchisement and conscious, conscious disfranchisement. And again, I want to be anyone who thinks this is all just about race or, or even ethnicity is, is confused. Um, not that long ago, Ronald Reagan, the, Re- the Reagan who was such an effective politician in the 60s and 70s in California, was was a thoroughly multi-ethnic politician. The Republicans back then were ag- actively, fiercely seeking the Latino vote, the Asian American vote on various and very pragmatic grounds. Sure. Ronald Reagan supported bilingual education. Mm. So this is not, you know, it's where can I go get the votes? Mm. A lot of the impulse for disenfranchisement and, you know, procedural, uh, not substantive democracy, where you are up there, came from just brutally nativist Yankees who would do virtually anything to keep the Irish from voting. And and the popularity of the play Hamilton. He was not yeah. particularly democratic. He did not like no, democracy no. one bit. Uh, no. But, of course, he was uh, around for protecting money. 
Uh, anyway, yeah. for, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Uh, first part of our show, our guest is uh, Van Goss, professor of history at Franklin and Marshall College, who's written a piece called The U.S. Is, Proced- is a Procedural, Not a Substantive Democracy. And many of us, I consider myself a genuine conservative. I care deeply mm-hmm. about conserving our traditions, our values, our principles, uh, the things we've wanted to be, our aspirations. We've taken it, we have taken it as a given, and apparently we're wrong, that the right to vote is in our Constitution and thus has protection built in. Hmm, I'm wrong. You point out that that assumption is just wrong. Is that well, right, at least in our history of judicial interpretations? That is there. Is there's there- a lot of, there's, I mean, I've talked to people who really work on this. You know, I remember, I, I'm not going to name a name, but uh, people at, say, the Brennan Center at New York University, who are, you know, uh, one of yes. the absolute premier places advocating for the right to vote, yes. really fighting all this disfranchisement and, you know, m- the maneuvers to purge voting rolls, to establish voter ID, to limit early vote. And there's such a long list of things yeah. that are being done, yeah. which are frankly anti-democratic. That's what they are. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. I mean, you can talk if you see systematic things to limit voting and they succeed as they are succeeding now in many states, yeah. that means we're a procedural. Mm-hmm. Formally speaking, there will be elections and a lot of people will vote, but we will we will prevent a lot of other people from voting unless they try a lot harder. Yeah. Make it very difficult. Okay, That's what's happening. This is not actually that common in other countries. Mm-hmm. This isn't standard operating procedure. Okay, so some, some years ago, they might have changed. I talked to some people you know, and they said mm, there. I said, "Well, there's a debate. Some people think that the Fourteenth Amendment be, could be construed as, you know, the the presumed rights that should not be invaded, that that are guaranteed all citizens. You know, and the Fourteenth Amendment is being used somewhere in some federal court today to expand people's rights, the rights to equal protection. So I'm not a constitutional lawyer." And someone else might say, no, no, you know, this court or that court, or you can make a strong argument that the right to vote is implied in. Mm-hmm. I think that's frankly less, much less convincing now yeah. if legislature after legislature passes things that are unequivocally going to make it a lot harder to vote for whole large swaths of the population <laughs> and, very, and judges let it go by or their state Supreme Courts are overturned. I mean, we're not even talking about this thing that, you know, is going up to the Supreme Court from North Carolina. That's that's so extreme. That would be that, that even a state Supreme Court cannot challenge a law that intends to disfranchise. But that's, what is it, Moore v. Harper, something like that? I don't know. So I, there is, there certainly is nothing clearly, you know, right. why the United States is not a true democracy. I put this in writing. We have three major amendments that extend the right to vote. Right, mm-hmm. the Fifteenth Amendment, Fifteenth, all of them in negative terms. You may not use race, color, or previous condition of servitude to exclude someone. Then mm-hmm. you may not use gender to exclude someone. Mm-hmm. Then finally, in 1972, you may not bar someone older than 18. None of these say there. None of them are affirmative uh-huh. guarantees. Okay. Oh, and of course, the poll tax amendment, 1965. Yeah. All of them are. You may not use this. Now, I'm going to just put out a, a what if, okay? Yep. None of those says, I mean, unless you interpret the poll tax amendment broadly, you may not use a property owning or tax paying or literacy requirement. Of course, those would be challenged. And, you know, can you imagine those would up, be upheld? But they there's were. nothing that absolutely unequivocally, I mean, they were upheld for a very long time. Yeah. So 
you know, it only was in 1962 the Supreme Court got around to saying one person, one vote. Before that, if you wanted to, you know, give a state legislative representative to a county with 30,000 people and, you know, one with 5,000 people, well, fine, you could do whatever you wanted, which is about as undemocratic as it gets. So I do not, as an historian anyway, mm-hmm. I don't see any evidence of a, something you could grab onto and say is an affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. And I, would like to. <laughs> I noticed that none of the brilliant lawyers and advocates and constitutionalist experts that I read has ever said, well, yes, there it is, and yeah. we're going to stick with that. And wait, I've got a New Hampshire example for you. May I? Yeah, okay. sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I happen to work a lot on student voting rights. That's one of my Good. things that yes. I do. At Franklin and Marshall College, we have something called FNM Votes since 2004. We work really hard to guarantee in a completely nonpartisan way. And the County Board of Elections, and this is a very Republican county, has been incredibly cooperative. We have no, this is not a partisan issue. Um, most people don't know that in 19, is it 76 or 77, in SIM v. US, S-Y-N. Uh, there was a county, you know, elections are run at the county level in the U.S. If you really want to get at the procedural, not substantive, look at what happens in the counties, okay? Uh. Not even at the state level, because the county clerks or chief re- registrars have enormous power. They decide where things, polling places go, hours, all kinds of rules and regulations. So there was a county registrar in, in a county in te- big county in Texas, and he simply regarded that all of the students attending the local, local HBCU, I forget, you know, state whatever that he didn't you know they weren't residents and he wouldn't register them oh. and it went up the supreme court his name was sim s-y-m-m and the supreme court ruled that students have a right to vote where they go to school you tell the republican republicans okay. in new hampshire including the secretary of state that they have that right yeah. huh? mm-hmm. so that's what i mean like as far as i know they've been denying and insisting no they're you know those mainers are coming over here and we're gonna what is it i you, you educate me massachusetts at, yeah. Yeah, are they the gonna enemy. try to make them get a driver's license or something they know how uh, young people are likely to vote and it's not right. the way they the want is, them to vote. A, a supreme court decision that says unequivocally they have a right to vote where they go to school it's being you know ignored routinely and new hampshire is a good example so that's an example of the, the purely procedural not enforceable right to vote okay well one thing i, I wonder about the, the the current crop of openly anti-democratic republicans they want to they're they're focused on empowering the individual states and i suppose counties yeah. to control how elections are held I, they obviously want to limit voting in less obvious ways than the you know less subtle jim crow laws but still limit voting what options do states have and counties have are there are there any minimal parameters for protecting a right to vote i'm getting a little worried here talking to you maybe they're not no you're absolutely right Yikes. well no i mean you know i mean there's so many because of the peculiar in many ways really antiquated pre-modern system that we have, which has been kept in place. You know, people are, kids go to school and I've known extraordinarily well-educated people. Well, no, it's really important that we have the Senate to protect the states. What are you talking about? I'm in Lancaster County. We have the population of Wyoming. Why do they get two senators and we don't? There's nothing, there's nothing democratic about the Senate. It's left over from protecting the rights of small slave states at the founding. Mm. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. And of course there's Delaware. Nobody would have heard of Joe Biden. Nobody would elect you know, a senator from three small Delaware counties, right? Or I mean, this Rhode Island, it's not, it, it cuts both ways. So this antiquated system that we dress up with the term federalism, 
which is really localism because of the in terms of elections, it is at the county level, and you that's where you can really mess around. So you can pass laws about voter ID and limiting early voting. That's bad enough. But down at the county level, you know, people who really want to keep voters out will they'll do all kinds of things. They can do it. They will they will tolerate physical intimidation at the polls. They will, you know, machines will no longer work. They will lawyer up. Remember Florida in 2000. Mm, of you course, know? yeah. And you know, there's nothing like an extremely aggressive campaign from one side and feckless incompetence from the other, <laughs> right? So part of the problem yeah, is... Yeah, we've seen that. I yeah. mean, so, you know, people, whether, I mean, forget the party label, people who are, you know, do their local... I mean, any polling place I've run into, and I'm going to... You know, somebody's going to be offended by this, okay? okay. I don't want to offend anybody. Okay. But polling places are often run by volunteers. You know, they're not yeah. volunteers. They're paid 100 bucks a day. And... Some of them really know what they're doing, and some of them are just right. there sort of hanging out. Yeah. I mean, this is actually not a very professional operation. So in other countries have a single national voter sy election system uh -huh. that runs in, in, a, in a clear, clean way. Okay, mm -hmm. And we're not necessarily talking Western European countries. They don't have these problems. So you have to ask something that is haphazard, county by county, amateur. We decide, we decide what we want to do. In whose interest do we have this strange, outdated? Pennsylvania is one of the worst, frankly. In whose interest? It's not even necessarily the interest of a great political party. It's in local interests. Yes. You know, I, and my, I've seen plenty of instances where local Democrats are not terribly eager to have lots of new voters recruited. So we, this is all of this is a, you know, the combination of that, of the small parochial local interest, mm -hmm. the, the control at the local level, naked partisan power grabs at the state level, and there then at the highest level, to take over the federal judiciary so that people who genuinely believe that this was, this is since this is how it was set up in 1788, would be, you know, appropriate to go back to that, right? And, and I did want to ask, I frankly yeah. had not heard of the i mean i'd heard of the compromise of 1877 but nobody's oh. familiar with that as you say after that compromise of 1877 democracy slowly imploded what did that do for so many decades to voter turnout in the south for blacks and poor whites what was the compromise of 1877 after um, radical so, reconstruction i guess yeah the formal ending of radical reconstruction right, right. not the ending of all black voting and this is something i mm. emphasize to students because if the Democrats in 1876 and said, we're going to, there won't be any more of those people voting. That, that would have been too much. The Republicans would have said, well, we better send the army back in, you know, because mm -hmm. we need those votes. Republican Party was a party that relied, I mean, U.S. Grant was elected president twice with black votes. Mm -hmm. So they were committed politically and ideologically and as a partisan organization to protecting the black vote. This was not, this wasn't charity. They needed them and they wanted them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in, in many, many states, the Democrats, you know, operated through paramilitary means. They controlled the polls, they killed people, they intimidated them. And, you know, the, there was an enormous amount of ballot box stuffing and what's called counting out. Three mm. states, three of the remaining Republican-controlled states, South Carolina, Louisiana, and I believe Florida, off the top of it, um, actually submitted two different slates, you know, of electors. Um, because they were so divided. These are like, you know, on the verge of civil war. Um, a black troops, federal black troops were still guarding the uh, South Carolina State House at that time. 
And Congress, with these disputed returns, had to decide who was going to be president. And it's a long and messy and extremely, there are parts of it that have never been fully, because it really was backroom stuff. Um, and they, it, it was not resolved for months. And the Republicans, which are, you know, had a lot of other, a lot of other irons in the fire, like the development of modern corporate capitalism, yeah. which they were deeply committed to, finally made a deal. Yes. They would accept the end of Reconstruction, remove the last symbolic troops from the South, allow the South to go back to home rule. You know, uh-huh. like this is okay. It is reconstructed in return for making Weatherford B. Hayes president over Sam Tilden, <clears throat> right? Uh, I believe so. I yes, believe and um, Sam Tilden, yeah. and that was the compromise. Uh-huh. Now the Republicans uh-huh. assumed that they weren't Ugly. losing everything; that right. you know their black voters would at least have some significant number. And it didn't. Disfranchisement did not happen immediately. It took quite a while to get to that point. But from then on, the Democrats were on sort of the war path. And periodically in North Carolina and Virginia, in various states, um, anti coalitions of populists and Republicans would get together and win the state. It happened on several instances up through the 1890s. Mm. So this is what finally produced the great push for disfranchisement, which the Republican Party, after a considerable, I mean, there were efforts to, there were efforts to actually maintain black voting in the South, but the Democrats used the filibuster mm-hmm. to stop them. So the Republicans finally gave up and said, well, we just can't do this. And, and we, that's when you get, that's when you asked me this question. Sure. If you were to look at almost, if you, if you find the date of disfranchisement, 1890, 1908, in any one of the former Confederate states from that point on, whatever that date is, until at least the 1950s, the average voting rate, total turnout versus the total possible electorate will typically be, and I've done many of these states, it's an exercise, you will often see, say, 18%, 15%, 19% of the total eligible electorate are actually voting. Republicans are getting, you know, 4%. There are one-party states, only a small minority vote. The poll tax disfranchises lots of white voters who don't seem to care. So that's mm. that's the biggest example, because we're talking three-quarters of a century here, where one-third of the country was a one-party state where only a small minority are able to vote bothered to vote and yet they are you know control an enormous chunk of the electoral college Boy, and they, the democrats are relying on those states right through 1960 and 64 don't hmm. forget that and of course the democrats back in the 19th century they were the party of segregation and the republicans well, were well they were the party of white supremacy yeah, white supremacy the, the, and it the kind slogan, of switched. yeah go ahead to be clear yeah the slogan white supremacy is a political slogan is a term was invented by a Democratic Party public relations guy, a, you know, a publicist in, in 19, 1863 in the middle of the Civil War in New York, huh. John Van Every. He started publishing pamphlets with that powerful title, oh. White Supremacy, What the Democratic Party Stands For. And it caught on <clears throat> and, you know, became the, I mean, well into the 1960s, the Alabama Democratic Party had as its ballot emblem, you know, you go in because a lot of their voters are illiterate, right? right. There would be right, a fighting right, right. cock, a rooster, and around the rooster, party of white supremacy. I kid you not. So that's, <sighs> this is this is a proud a proud claim of the Democrats from the Civil War into 100 years later. Wow. In the South, I mean, not in the North. Yeah, the power of keeping people illiterate can't really be underestimated, that's for sure. Well, and I know we, we only have half an hour here, and I just want to ask, in the 20, yeah. 2022 midterms, my impression was that there was a higher-than-normal consciousness about democracy being under threat. It did have some... That's what they say. They say. Yeah, I mean... In the ideal, many of us would like to see more economic democracy, but that's still in the realm of long-term aspirational, uh, really long-term. But in terms of voting in elections, surely we... 
the people are not powerless. What uh, is there? What can we do to strengthen democracy to make it more substantive? Well, I mean, a lot of people did actually do it in twenty in these elections. I mean, not an accident that you know. I mean, Donald Trump got millions and millions. Is it six million more votes in twenty twenty, right? Yeah. Than he had in twenty sixteen, right? Yeah. But Joe Biden got even more than that. Yes. I mean, we're we're in a. It, this is you know hmm, a war to the finish. There's a very, very large, highly mobilized group of people in this country. They've taken over the Republican Party. The mm, rest of them are mm, running scared. Mm-hmm. Maybe not up where you are. You know, sure, you've got your Paula Page over there, but there are a lot of, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. Charlie, what's his name? And, and, you know, though I noticed that, you know, the more reasonable Republicans seem to be stepping down. Yeah. But anyway, there is a very large, highly mobilized group of people who are, say, are really openly and, and formally anti-democratic yes, now. Yes, yes. Elections are only legitimate if we win. Yes. That's the only real so election. So what can we do if we want to even strengthen democracy? Are there people in Congress, organizations taking the lead? Oh, sure. There's lots of, I mean, there's so many. I mean, there. my goodness, there are, I mean, gosh, there, I mean, everywhere you look. There's Indivisible, for instance, thousands of grassroots groups. Mm-hmm. Um, there's my, a particular organization that is working inside and outside and around the Democratic Party to make it more more of a fighting party, more standing up for working people. Is the Working Families Party. I think uh-huh. the Working Families is doing tremendous work all oh, over the good. country, and meaning we get much, much better candidates, candidates who actually speak for working people. Because, wow. I mean, what there a is a problem. Yeah. Well, no, it's a problem when the people are you know, supposed to be speaking for the working people. You know, I, I mean, just... Yeah, I Regular folks, working yeah. people, yeah. seem to actually be themselves multimillionaires, and they like to hang out with multimillionaires. That's actually not a that's not a good recipe for no. the party that we need. No, so, look what happened in 2016. I mean, yeah, we had unfortunately a, an elitist-looking candidate. People didn't know who Donald Trump was, but they knew he wasn't elitist. Bingo. Yeah. Well, and misogyny played a huge factor. Well, yeah. You know. So, well, this has been very interesting talking okay. to you. Not exactly. The most uh, encouraging, but uh, no, it's important no. to know truth. The truth shall set you free. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, Van Goss. If people are interested in following uh, your stuff, uh, you mentioned uh, one book you've written. Yeah, they can look me up in Amazon. You know, ah. uh, there's quite a bit there. I've oh, got uh, a bunch of books. Or just look my, on Google. Look me up. U.S. is not a true democracy. That would be a good couple of good pamphlets. Thank you so much for being with us on All keeping right. democracy Thanks, alive. Bert. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs> Disappointment where the women kneel to pray For the grace of God in the desert here in the desert far away Democracy is coming to the USA And on this part of Keeping Democracy Alive... People who listen to this show regularly are not big fans of Kirsten Cinema or that other alleged Democrat, uh, Joe Manchin. And no doubt, if you're listening, you've gotten requests for giving money, yet again, to a new candidate uh, from Arizona against Kirsten Cinema. And you, like me, were probably wondering, who is this guy? What is he somebody that I should give money to? I've given a lot of money in 2022. No matter who you are out there, I know you have. Uh, and so who is this guy? And I'm very pleased to have with us today somebody who uh, just knows about politics from, from way back, uh, John Nichols, veteran national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We're going to talk about, should you look at Ruben Gallego? 
Who is Ruben Gallego? Is he somebody that is worth giving money to? Is he uh, another dino, re- Democrat in name only, or is he uh, is he for real? Can he win? Can he beat Kirsten Cinema? Well, we'll take a look at that, what he has to offer if you should invest your hard-earned money in uh, that campaign that no doubt you've heard from. Uh, our guest today is John Nichols, as I said, veteran national affairs correspondent with The Nation magazine, which I hope you're a regular reader of, and along with Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, John Nichols is the co-writer of an upcoming book on public policy, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. He's also the author of Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The, en- the Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and I will say I am a huge fan of Henry A. Wallace, uh, Horseman on the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America from Nation Books and co-author with Robert McChesney of People Get Ready, the Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy. Today, we'll, we'll t- try to answer questions about this. Ruben Gallego, Nichols' article in The Nation is titled, Ruben Gallego, More Than Just an Alternative to Kirsten Cinema. That is good to hear. Hey, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy uh, Alive. Uh, and tell us, uh, a lot of people haven't heard, uh, he's a new face, and people in America, we like new faces. We like celebrities. We are. It, it's like, you got to have a new face. And to me, I, I don't buy into that. I, being an older person myself now, uh, I, I, I don't mind uh, older people. But tell us a bit about uh, Ruben Gallego. He is uh, somebody who's asking for money. Is he, is he uh, a good investment now? Is he for real? And I think, I think a lot of people want somebody to stand up to uh, party leadership and, and, and to have some real chutzpah, to use that uh, Latin word. Uh, tell us about this new candidate, please. John Nichols, thanks. Well, Bert, it's good to be with you. And, uh, and I, I know we haven't spoken in quite a while, and so it's a, it's a pleasure to join you again on your program. Um, I want to emphasize up front, I'm, I'm not here to tell people uh, who to give money to or who not to give money to. Right. Who to invest with or who not to invest? You know that's that's for people to sort out on their own. Yes, uh, but I'm I'm certainly glad to to talk about uh, this Arizona Senate race, which I think is a huge deal because, uh, as you mentioned, I wrote a book on uh, the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, and argued that that there really are very clear factions and and wings of the Democratic Party, uh, a left, a center, and a right, um, yeah. and that that. If we don't understand that, if we're not clear about that, we can't begin to talk about, you know, why the party is strong at times and why the party fails at other times. That's the same with the Republicans, by the way. The Republican Party historically had very clear factions. It seems now to have settled more into, uh, you know, a narrower lane. Mm. But it's important to understand parties and to understand the people who fight the uh, struggles within a party to define it. And the Arizona is going to do that. Kirsten Cinema has staked out territory um, as uh, initially a, uh, a kind of a center-right Democrat with a lot of ties to corporate power. Mm. She 
recently announced that she's going to uh, serve as an independent, right. but she's still caucusing with the Democrats and, and taking advantage of that relationship. And uh, and so while this is a slightly different circumstance than a primary, it's it's really uh, something that may play out in a in a November election with a three way race with Cinema running as an independent, uh, Ruben Gallego running as uh, uh, a Democrat, potentially if he gets a Democratic nomination, mm. uh, uh, and then uh, a Republican. So if we put this all in, in context and we look at it, I think that under the thing to understand about Congressman Gallego is that he is, um, is somebody who, when he was elected to Congress in 2014, came up and clearly signaled that he intended to serve as a progressive. He joined the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He joined progressive issue caucuses on issues such as health care and jobs and, and other concerns. And he has really served um, as someone who is driven by a set of values. Yeah. And values are um, values that, have, that are not just different from those of Kirsten Cinema, but in fact are quite different um, from you know, a lot of center-right and even centrist uh, Democrats. He's clearly very, very um, bold in taking stands in favor of economic and social and racial justice. Mm. The other thing about him that's quite striking is, as a veteran, Congressman Gallego yes. um, has been willing to stand up to presidents of both parties when he thought that they were um, attempting to guide this country into um, wars or military interventions that he basically felt were unwise. Well, I think people, I hope people care about values, and, and there's a lot of curiosity about him. Uh, uh, and his background in the military, he served in Iraq, in combat in Iraq. And I'm wondering, I mean, there's 50 different states now, and each one is kind of really has its own, well, a few identities. But Arizona... It's it's a large geographical state. There's a lot of uh, new Hispanic people there. There's a lot of conservatives there. Uh, there was recently a, a rather interesting election for governor there. Uh, so I guess what, what I'm leading up to is, can he win? I mean, and, and in this three-way, like uh, uh, she's planning, Cinema is planning on running as an independent. No doubt they'll be a Republican. Uh, oftentimes, third-party candidates uh, kind of unfortunately uh, give it to the Republican. Your sense of that, John Nichols? Sure. Um, I've covered a lot of Arizona politics over the years, okay. and, and you're right. It's a, it's, a, um, it's a complex state, right? And it's a changing state. Arizona was once a very Democratic state. Huh. It became a much more Republican state. Um, in fact, for a while there, it was sort of a reliably Republican state. Right. Uh, now it has, uh, has moved to being at least a swing state. And frankly, if you look at the results from the 2022 election, yeah. where Democrats won most of the top statewide races and actually had significant progress in the legislative contests and congressional contests, uh, it's, there's some evidence it's trending toward being a Democratic state. Remember, it now has two Democratic senators, a Democratic governor, a Democratic secretary of state, yes. and a Democratic Attorney General, and it did very narrowly vote for the Democrat for president in the last election. So clearly Democrats can win there. Now, you're right about the complexity of this three-way race. Um, if Kirsten Sinema comes in as an independent running uh, with a lot of corporate money, which mm. she will have a chance to, to attract, 
um, she could position herself as uh, somebody who's socially liberal, uh, but more conservative on some economic issues, some corporate issues. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's an appeal there. I mean, there's some people that, that fall into that camp. And, uh, but my gut instinct is that the lines have been drawn so clearly that really what we end up with is a question of um, who can beat the Republican. Right. And the chances are that in a circumstance like this, the Democrat is more likely to be able to do that. Now, if uh, Kirsten Cinema attracts some measure of moderate to or center right and mm-hmm. votes, right? That's the Cindy McCain types, you know, mm-hmm. who's a very influential figure in Arizona still, and then attracts you know, some portion of you know centrist independents. Yeah, she'll get a vote, but um, the votes that are lost on the Republican side to her, as well as some of those independent votes are not necessarily going to be the equal to the core Democratic vote that Ruben Gallego ought to be able to attract as a, a candidate who, A, has already been elected to Congress a number of times in the state, who has a high profile, and who would be running a campaign to mobilize um, uh-huh. Bannock voters, young voters, um, and, and, you know, moderate to liberal voters. So I, I think that it's, it's quite possible that Gallego can, can win this race. And, um, and that's a big deal. Yes. Because if he gets to the Senate as a relatively progressive Democrat, um, boy, that's, you know, that's a, a whole new game there. Because um, it, it's a seat that currently caucuses Democratic, but doesn't vote with the Democrats on core issues of organizing the Senate, like dealing with the filibuster and, and the structural things that need to be done to make sure that judicial appointments can can be approved and, and all sorts of other issues. And and so um, that's why this is a big deal race, not merely for, um, you know, people in Arizona, but I think for people in the country. Right. We have races now and again, Bert, um, where there are really um, contests that get nationalized. Yes. Um, They'll have all their core local issues, but they are of great interest to the rest of the country. And I think Arizona is going to be that in no small part. And, and we have to acknowledge this because Kirsten Cinema has been such an outsized personality. Mm-hmm. I mean, like her or dislike her, she's somebody that that gets a lot of attention. And so people are going to be watching that. And I, and I do think for a, a lot of Democrats, there's pretty good evidence that they're going to be hoping that she doesn't continue as a senator. Yeah, quite a few people. And I'm curious, you mentioned Cindy McCain her, on yeah. her strength. And she obviously uh, had some antipathy toward the orange thing that used to occupy the White House. Uh, what's How much of a fact, is she still a, I mean, her husband, yeah, let's face it, he was a, a real, real conservative fairly traditional Republican. What about her strength in, in all this? Is she, uh, she's not the considering running, I hope. No, no, no. Her no. <laughs> shown an interest in running. Um, but she, you know, has shown a great interest and, and she's a very influential figure in yeah, Arizona. Yeah. She's shown a great interest in maintaining her husband's um, philosophy, if you will. Uh-huh. That was a relatively conservative philosophy, but that put patriotism and yes. respect for 
ahead of uh, partisanship. Now, not always, and you can find plenty of places where you might want to criticize, but but you know, generally that was that's the message that they tried to communicate, and she has continued to do that. Um, so she's a she's a, a significant figure there. Yeah, I, I, I imagine she is. She's got a lot of a lot of respect, and and you're right. I mean, caring about the country. They would, boy, that was a different Republican Party back then. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and we're talking. Uh, I have the pleasure of talking with John Nichols, veteran national affairs correspondent for the Nation magazine, and we're addressing a race for Senate in Arizona. Now, chances are you don't live in Arizona, but as as John Nichols said, it is a national race. I mean, virtually every U.S. Senate race is a national race now, and the money that it takes, oh, my God, I can't even imagine. I have to say I'm pleased that he's, he's doing well in terms of money. Ruben Gallego, and we're talking about uh, does he have a chance? Our guest today, John Nichols, wrote an article for The Nation magazine. Uh, Ruben Gallego is more than just an alternative to Kirsten Cinema, People don't often vote on foreign policy. It's something I care about a lot, but people don't generally vote on that. But the fact that he's, that Ruben Gallego is from a, a, a military background and understands that, uh, what, what, he said something about, in your article, he said what he calls the determination necessary to prevail on the battlefield and the importance of that and how our current methods have failed or even worsened our national security. Uh, I wonder how that will play. Will that resonate? I mean, it's important to me, I think. I mean, people die on these battlefields, and for what? And he's seen it. You take it from here, please. (laughs) Well, look, um, we have a long history in this country of veterans who have uh, seen the worst of war, yes, and uh, but also seen the best of their comrades on, uh-huh. the, on the, and and come home with a, a consciousness that they have unique understanding and unique responsibility uh, if they're elected to public office. This is clearly something you saw with John Kerry, a veteran of the uh-huh. Vietnam War, um, who often spoke, especially early in his career about the importance of, you know, taking those decisions on whether to go to war or not to war, uh, and even rather to intervene uh, in, in somewhat smaller ways than a full-on war, uh, very mm. seriously because of what people had seen during Vietnam. And, um, and he's not alone in this. There's, Congress now has a number of uh, veterans who are actually quite skeptical about presidents just deciding to uh, launch a new war or launch a new military intervention. And the importance on this, this is a very, it's, there's subtlety to this. This is a place on issues of war and peace where you do sometimes see people go beyond uh, partisanship and ideology um, to the, that rare point of, of saying, you know, look, uh, I'm going to disagree with the president of my own party. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to agree with the president of the other party. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it is because they, again, I think it's not just vets. There's others who recognize that, you know, when you're making decisions about questions of war and peace, I mean, that's people's lives at stake. Yeah. And and it's there's a lot there's a lot up for grabs there. And so you take it seriously. And I think that, you know, Ruben Gallego is uh, somebody who has shown as I wrote about, uh, real evidence that he's one of those those uh, 
types of members. Um, he stood up to a Democratic president on questions of sending uh, more troops to the Middle East. He stood up to a Republican president on questions of, you know, launching military missions in the, in the Middle East. Um, and he did so as somebody who had served there, right, who had experience. And, and so I, I think that, that this is something that when you're, when you're looking at candidates, when you're weighing them, uh, it's one thing to, to look at. You know, we often have people say, oh, I want to get elected to public office because I've been in business and I want to bring a, a business right. sensibility to governing. I'm always very dubious about that because yeah. I think government's very different than business. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but somebody who comes and says, you know, look, I've served in war. You know, as as this congressman does, and as several others do, and and say they want to bring that that perspective to debates about war and peace. Do you know who did this best over the years? Mm. Um, with Bob Kerry, the former oh, uh, uh-huh. Senator Nebraska. from Nebraska, right. Robert Kerry. And boy, some of the speeches he gave um, when this country was considering military interventions um, and on and a host of related issues. Those are some of the most brilliant speeches I've ever heard in Congress. Mm. Um, and it's it's a perspective that's important yes. to recognize and respect. And I think I, I think it resonates with people, even if they don't necessarily, you know, focus on foreign policy. The, you know, people generally focus on what they call kitchen table issues. But I think that that aspect of a personality is something that. Yeah, people, I think they really, really do, they get it. It's a little bit different. It's not your, you know, weak-kneed, uh, go-along-to-get-along uh, politician. No, I, I I think, I don't know, I may be wrong. I'm often wrong. No, I think you're right. And I think that, that you know, it's in it's often in these foreign policy debates, yeah. which are very difficult, right? Because um, sometimes there are arguments for intervention. Yeah. Um, and, and you recognize that. But there's complex debates, and they often get reduced to jingoism. Yeah. You know, where there's not a not a thoughtful discussion. Yeah. I I do think that you know um, there's some some record on on Congressman Diego's part um, of of refusing to fall into that trap, well, and and I don't want to make him. I don't want to over right. celebrate him. I he's not alone in this regard, and he's not perfect. Again, I I've right. said before. I, I think he's been uh, too cautious about, you know, reducing the military budget, which I think the Pentagon budget should oh. should be addressed. But um, but I think when you when you look at at political figures, you should take this into the mix. And and by the way, if I can add one more thing, oh please, sure. Um, when I'm I see Republicans now and again, yes, who are who stand out in this regard. Absolutely. I just did a piece this week about um, Rand Paul. Yes, I was going to bring him up. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll well, let you bring it. Well, Gallegos, I mean, Gallegos stood with Rand Paul on at least one foreign policy matter, on our strikes in Syria. That may surprise listeners. Now your turn. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's it. And, and Rand Paul, just the other day, um, uh, gave a, a, did a press conference in which he said that uh, Republicans have to, if they're serious about reducing the debt, right, reducing deficits, they have to, um, you know, look at the sacred cow, as he referred to it, mm-hmm. of the Pentagon, right? They gotta, they have to acknowledge that if you really want to reduce spending uh, and and reduce debt, address debt, um, you got to look at the Pentagon. Now, 
he did this in context of many other cuts he wants to do. I mean, uh, Rand Paul goes far beyond where I would want to be. Um, he wants to cut domestic spending on a host of things that, yeah. that I'd be much cautious about cutting. Yeah. But, but I give Rand Paul credit as a Republican um, for saying, look, you, know, you got to look at the Pentagon, too. And um, that is something that ought to be taken seriously. People ought to say, OK, that's somebody I can talk to. Right. We may not agree on everything, but right. but this is somebody that you can have discussion with. And and uh, and so I wrote a lot about it. I, I wrote a lengthy piece on Rand Paul in that regard, because I think there's too much of a tendency to dismiss somebody in the other party, um, you know, yeah. across. The and we're never going to begin to get these war and peace Pentagon issues, spending issues right. Mm-hmm. Unless you build, you know, I, I think coalitions across at least some lines of partisanship and ideology. Well, the fact is, your friend and mine, Bernie Sanders, has agreed with Rand Paul on some issues, yeah. particularly oh, yeah. issues like this. And I, good for them. I mean, you know, there's there's right the, the party, the Republican Party, has gone so far to the bizarre right, conservative. I don't, it kills me when the mainstream media calls them. Uh, conservative. This is slight uh, digression from our discussion here, but the other other foreign policy issue that is of interest to I hope a lot of people is Saudi Arabia. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they don't have a nice government there, in my opinion. I mean, they're they're murder, and and we we have discussed Saudi Arabia and their war on Yemen uh, on on this show before, and many Democrats are, frankly, including myself upset at President Biden on our continuing, you know, friendly relationship with the with the Saudis. What about Gallego? What's he had to say about this? I'm, I'm interested in that because I don't like what they're doing in Yemen, etc. Yeah, no, uh, well, you're right. And, and uh, uh, Congressman Gallego has, um, uh, I think early in his career, was one of the people who joined um, with uh, a number of other folks, uh, Democrats and Republicans, to raise concerns about um, U.S. support for yeah. the Saudi military as regards Yemen. So um, he's he's one of these folks, and and um, this is a very important thing: the uh, the bipartisan and ideologically diverse coalition of people that has stood up to the uh, Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations. Mm-hmm. Guards U.S. support for the Saudis is not to be underestimated. They've gotten real traction. Um, I, I think they have not won at every turn, uh, but they have made these issues uh, front and center. And uh, it's striking to me that uh, I think that that the U.S. has been at least somewhat more conscious of the problem mm-hmm. with its support for the Saudi military because of this. Unfortunately, not sufficient efficiently conscious and there is still a desperate need for the united states to make it absolutely clear that this country is not going to support the saudi military when it is engaged in military actions as regards yemen that are incredibly damaging damaging to civilians especially to children um and so you know, this is one of the ways when we look at foreign policy, we shouldn't just look at, you know, war and peace, right? We also have to look at military aid and how that military aid, um, you know, at times uh, helps countries 
uh, to do things that we should, for all sorts of reasons, be uh, disapprove of. Yeah. It, and it, I think he's spot in Yemen. I, I, you know, just just selfishly, is it in our national interest to keep doing so? I don't think so. Well, we've talked quite a bit about foreign policy, which obviously both of us care about. But what what else is, does he Gallego offer the people of of Arizona? You know, people want somebody to to help them and you know to serve them. What what tell us about his his other appeal, if you would please. Oh, I think, uh, you know, that in writing about him over the years, and I've, I've written about him a few times, um, he's clearly a, a young uh, kind of new generation mm-hmm. uh, Arizona political figure. And as a result, he came up in an era when the state was deeply divided over the issue of immigration. Ah. And some of those divisions remain, but um, Gallego has sought to um, address them, right, and to to look for resolutions that are humane and not um, you know, that are not discriminatory, not, uh, not cruel. Uh, and I think that's an important aspect of, of the discourse, but, um, there's something more, you know, yes, Arizona is a border state. So you talk a lot about immigration there, but there's a lot of other issues and, and Arizona is a booming state. It's mm. growing very rapidly. Wow. Um, so they have all the problems that other states have housing, uh, costs, especially in the Phoenix and Tucson areas, but also in other communities. Um, and then, you know, access to healthcare, which is a huge issue down there. Yeah. Uh, Arizona's got a, a large aging population, and then it's got a large, very young population. Mm. Uh, and and in this case, you know, issues of Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid become really, really, you know, incredibly important. Ah. Um, and he, this congressman in particular, has been on the right side of expanding access to healthcare, um, which in, in Arizona is a very big deal. The last thing that I'll put on the mix there is that um, on on questions of, of labor rights and worker rights, uh-huh. um, which are a very, very big deal in Arizona, um, uh, because you have, you know, the unions there are not as strong as in a lot of other places. And so you've got a lot of workers who, frankly, have faced uh, economic exploitation. Uh, and uh, Congressman Gallego has been very good on, on you know, fighting for worker rights. And um, we don't talk about that enough when we discuss politics. Yes. Um, the, the defense of the championship of worker rights oh, absolutely. is a huge deal. And we have too many people in Congress who give lip service to it, right? but stand strong uh, for strong unions, for good wages, uh, and for protection of the workplace. And so I think that's something that, to my mind, distinguishes uh, this congressman as a from, for instance, Kirsten Cinema, who has been far more on the corporate side, and and I do I, I do think that one of the reasons what happened in 2016 happened is because Democrats used to be known as as reliable, dependable advocates for working people. Then we kind of let it go, and it sounds like he is that, and maybe people people know that uh, we're talking about. And and again, neither of us is is on the take from this for sure. You know, because I know a lot of listeners have gotten requests for money from Kirst, uh, from Ruben Gallego, who is running against Kirsten Cinema, and I just, you know, a lot of people are like, who is he? Is he worth giving to? And I think John Nichols has answered the questions very nicely. Well, Bert, it's it's good to be with you again. I want to emphasize, I'm not here to tell people who to right, give money to. Right. I mean, Me another they can sort out uh, or not. What I I do think is that looking at this Arizona race. Uh, and looking at a lot of the Senate races coming in 2024 yeah. is really 
important because um, it's the Senate that will be the great battleground along with the presidency. Um, and uh, and Arizona, I, I can promise you, uh, the discussion we just had, uh, people are going to be having right up through November of 2024. John Nichols, we got to do this again. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. And Thank you. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.